the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour this November 17th. Delight to uh, bring back on the show one of my oldest friends and one of my favorite people, Tevi Troy. He's a presidential historian, and his most recent book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. You've heard me talking about it with him and with others. It's a great read. It's a lot of fun. But he had a piece in the Washington Post the other day, um, five myths on presidential transitions. And I remember calling you, Tevi, to see if you could come on the show about something else. He said, I got to get this deadline. I'm on deadline. I'm on deadline. You were late for an important date. You made the deadline. It's people are talking all about this piece. Um, It's getting a lot of attention on social media. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for writing it. And I appreciate you. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. And it was a fun piece to write. But uh, I found the Washington Post is a great piece to be published. But the effort of getting in there is often challenging. I've been there. I've been there. And, uh, and you know, often the best the best outlets, I find, are some, in some ways the most challenging. Yeah, yeah. It is our favorite magazine. And they are a heavily edited magazine. And, uh, you know, and they pride themselves on it. It's a good point. And several times I, um, I did it from the um, perspective of a ghostwriter. And... I uh, did it for someone who was encouraging because I said, look, it's they're just being too hard. They're just being too hard. Let's give up. And he would have if I'm pressed enough. But he said, eh, it's worth it to stay just a little longer mm-hmm. with them. It, it's it's worth it. I think ultimately he might have been right. And uh, it's sometimes worth it. But I, before we do too many myths, I, I don't want I, I have another big thing I want to do with you in the audience. But do tell me um, or the audience. In researching this and in going through presidential history and transitions, what was the one you discovered that was most interesting to you? You know, I, I just found it interesting this whole notion, and there's been some noise about it lately, that, oh my gosh, if the old administration doesn't hand over the keys to the potential new administration, then there's no ability to do a transition. And the truth is, most of a transition's effort is internal, starts long before an election, and it requires the selection and vetting and preparation of new candidates, as well as the highlighting of key policy goals for a new administration. As you know, a campaign, campaigns in kind of vagueness and big big ideas, but when you govern, you have to govern in specificity. Uh, Mario Cuomo famously said that campaign, uh, campaigns in poetry, but must govern in prose. Okay. And it's that transition from poetry to prose and the specific people who are going to be writing the prose is what a transition is really about. And so that's what I highlighted in my piece. Good enough. Thank you. And people can check it out. Five Myths of Presidential Transitions by Tevi Troy, widely available now. The other thing I want to do with you, because you are also known not only as a presidential historian, but as a great book reviewer as well as great reader. And this has been on my mind for a while. I kept meaning to do it with the audience. I'd love to do it with you. And I was thinking about you know, where we are as a conservative movement right now and how it's a good time, whatever result comes, it's a good time for us to think about books on policy, informing ourselves on policy, 
<clears throat> I made the uh, observation in my monologue, probably not unique, I just hadn't heard many people talking about it, Tevi, that for as much attention as this campaign had and as many votes as it seemed to have elicited um, in, in 2020, there's still almost, almost 100 million eligible voters who didn't vote. And that, you know, it's part of our task to reach them. Now, why don't they vote? There's been different speculations about why eligible voters don't vote. Some of them just don't think it matters to their lives. Some of them don't think it's worth the hassle and stress of more hassle than stress of standing in line or going to the booth and doing the vote. Some people may think it's um, politics aren't important. And it seems to me it's our task to get people to understand, to be go from apathetic to having pathos about things we care about. And one of the things I think we conservatives have to do, and you can challenge me on anything I'm saying as you, if you want, is we have to probably reintroduce ourselves not just to books that you and I have reviewed on air together about the philosophy of the modern conservative movements, but specific policies, specific policies and why they're important. And before I do that, I, I would invite you to comment on anything I just said. Yeah, look, the, the low-information voter, the person who's not showing up in the, the booth, is probably not going to be reading these kind of policy books we're talking about. But the people who might try to encourage That's that what I'm person, saying, right, we can. They, they, could be, right. they could be inspired right. by it. And, right. and look, I know I was inspired by reading policy books at, at a relatively young age. And, uh, one of the books that really grabbed me when I was young was a book called Common Ground by J. Anthony Lucas. Mm -hmm. And it was about the busing fight in Boston, but I'll never forget the blurb on it, which said, to say this book is about busing in Boston is like saying that Moby Dick is about whaling in New Bedford. Right. It was really right. about America in the 1970s and this notion that busing, which is where you take, you force people to take their children from one district where they, you know, which is their home, far away to another district for some, some supposed cause that is um, that is larger than um, than the individual comprehension can manage, and it alienated the African American parents. It alienated the white parents. Nobody wanted it. Every time there was a chance to vote against it, it was voted down. And that you had this series of liberal bureaucrats and the courts that were imposing it on people who did not want it. And the book was just a, a fascinating deep dive into this whole issue of bus, busing in Boston in the 1970s and why the feelings about it were so bitter and why these people who s expressed very strongly that they did not want their children to be bused mm -hmm. were not having their voices heard. That uh, l let, me, let me say two things. One is before we do other policy books, I don't want people to think, oh, policy boring. These are the, the list I put together. I think it's interesting stuff. But the point you're making about busing is kind of interesting, particularly this year when you think about the big score Kamala Harris made on Joe Biden when they were both running for the presidency. And, you know, was it last year or this year? But during this presidential season when she made such a big point on the issue of busing and put him on his heels over it. And the funny thing was she won the point because I don't know he he he's slow and he wasn't prepared for the assault, I suppose. But the funny thing is she was articulating and arguing for a policy that has now been fairly universally condemned. No Absolutely one wanted it, as you condemned. say. You know, she scored on a point that was lost, if, in, a, in a sense, if you will. Right. And, and as I said, every time the American people 
whether at a local level or a national level, had a chance to vote on this, they voted against right. it. Right, yeah. People did not want this. And I understand that she got up there, and the only the only famous phrase that I think Kamala Harris has, has uttered in, in her political life is, that little girl is me. Right. right? The only, right. right now, if she's in Bartlett's quotations, it's only for that quote. Correct. Uh, but she was wrong on the larger point. Yeah, yeah. It was. She was trying to to attack on a policy that long had been, long had it's been discredited. Dis- yeah, discredited by the vast majority of the American people in both the like minority in the Democratic Party. Yeah, in the Democratic Party and in the minority communities. Exactly right. Exactly right. So let, let's talk about books that are interesting. Again, I, you're right. Probably not for people that don't vote now, but maybe to help our movement along and 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 to help our movement refamiliarize itself with some of the issues that you know are still with us haven't gone away because we love talking Whitaker Chambers and Witness and you know all the all the great philosophical books but the things about the specifics right and not just election year books either um i um i i, I guess i'll start with the one you turned me on to which I think is probably one of the most important books of the 20th century, and that's Myron Magnet's Dream and Nightmare, The Dream and the Nightmare. You want to say something about that? This was such an eye-opening book for me. It made the case that elites had argued for policies and behaviors that they could afford to engage in, meaning some drug use and not getting married and having children out of wedlock and uh, and that the elites could afford to engage in those behaviors without it upsetting their lives. But when the elites engaged in those behaviors and advocated for those behaviors, the lower classes followed them and engaged in those behaviors at great cost. And the disconnect between what people who are wealthy and upper middle class can get away with and what people who don't have those same options can get away with is, is stark. And we really need to have the best among among us advocate for the best behaviors. And instead we had them advocating for less optimal behaviors that had a real significant social, political, and economic it, it It is the best book I have seen that is a takedown of what the great society and the welfare uh, lobby has tried to do for America. Let's come back on that and a bunch of other books I have I want to discuss with you in the audience, if that's okay. Are you good for a little bit of time, or do you have to run? Amen. Can't wait. Great. Tevi Troy, presidential historian, his most recent book, Fight House Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. We will be right back. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest. He's a presidential historian and uh, author himself. He um, he wrote a great piece in The Washington Post on myths of the transition. Uh, and um, his most recent book is called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House, uh, from Truman to Trump. It's fantastic. Uh, Tevi, uh, I want to talk to you about a few more books on policy issues. These books that in themselves I think are, are interesting. I don't think just because we're calling them policy they're at all boring. Dream and Nightmare. I remember you recommended that when I needed something interesting, and boy was it. And that on welfare policy in the 60s. Um, judicial Issues. I still think, and I think your family had a hand in this, if I'm not mistaken, I still think, though I disagree with some of the legal positivism in the philosophical aspect of it, I think The Tempting of America by Robert Bork still stands high, and I would recommend. What do you think? 
Look, in the 1980s, there was the development of this whole school of strict constructionism or originalism, mm-hmm. this idea that you get the meaning of the Constitution from the Constitution itself, that there's not a living Constitution that you can make up according to fulfill whatever your policy preferences are at the moment. And Bork's book was the first widely available, widely accessible articulation of that idea. Now, there had been other technical, legal, journal-type works on this subject, Mm -hmm. but Bork, after he lost his Supreme Court nomination in the 1980s due to a really ridiculous and terrible uh, campaign of mistruths and untruths against him, he went and wrote this book, and he articulated what judicial a conservative judicial approach should be. And so it was very valuable for that. It also has an unbelievable story that I need to share yeah. Seth, with your audience. Please. Bork was mistreated horribly by the United States Senate. Right. And the worst of the mistreaters, next to Joe Biden himself, who, uh, who was on the Judiciary Committee at the time, was Ted Kennedy. Right. And Ted Kennedy gave a really unconscionable speech on the Senate floor where he suggested that in Robert Bork's America, again, all of this is untrue, women would be forced in the kitchen and, and uh, African Americans would be forced into slavery and just all these terrible things back that were alley, not Robert true. Bork's America is an America of back alley abortions and segregated lunch counters. I remember that phrase specifically. Right. And yeah. all, again, not true. Right. So Bork was uh, forced to do what are known as courtesy calls with the United States senators. Right. This is for people who are senior officials who have to get confirmed by the Senate, and they meet with the senators. I myself was uh, fortunate or unfortunate enough to go through this process when I was confirmed for Deputy Secretary of HHS. Mm-hmm. And so Bork has to go and meet with Ted Kennedy, who has been out there saying the most vicious lies against him. And in the book, Bork describes the meeting with Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy would not look him in the eye stared at his shoes the entire time, meaning his own shoes, Kennedy's mm-hmm. shoes, and just mumbled, nothing personal, nothing personal. Yeah. Well, you know what? I do think it's personal sure it if is. you call someone uh, someone who's pro-segregation, pro-back yes. alley abortion. You bet. And, you know, I, I think um, you know, I think Kennedy behaved abhorrently in that situation, and I was glad that Bork <laughs> highlighted you know, that the man was uh, too cowardly even to face the things he'd been saying publicly. You know, let me stay on this topic just a second in a larger sense, because I was having a discussion with uh, my friend Jim this morning about, you know, how we've surrendered, I think we've surrendered a lot of our institutions, cultural, educational, legal, a, a lot of institutions to the left. They've taken them over, and we've surrendered in a lot of cases. And I said, this is why the Senate is so damned important if for no other reason than the judiciary. And we talked a little bit about that, obviously, and how I mentioned, you know, we conservatives woke up late to the realization that the judicial system was being used by the left and the Democrats as politics by other means. You know, they had a 50-year maybe head start on us until we realized it. And this whole conversation you were talking about, this notion of original intent, I don't even think, quite frankly, it was probably in print at all as an issue outside of perhaps abstruse journals until Ed Meese was the attorney general and gave a couple speeches on it in the early 1980s under Ronald Reagan. I think that's when the notion of original intent became a little bit popular just a little bit, and we started to push back and fight back shortly after the Federalist Society was founded, which had to have been, what, circa 78, 79, 80, 81? You'll correct me on yeah, right this. Yeah, right around there. This is after 50 years or more 
of having surrendered the judiciary without even knowing it and realizing that this is what the left and the Democrats use for politics by other means, the courts. Yeah? Yeah, look, um, conservatives do not believe that the justices, and still don't believe the justices, should pick their policy preferences. Right. They feel that we have a constitution and we should abide by the constitution. You know, in Congress, there used to be actually a constitutional test. Before the legislation would pass, you'd have to check and see if it if it passed the muster with the constitution. That is long out the window. Yeah. In fact, when somebody raised this issue to Nancy Pelosi during the Obamacare debate, she said, are you serious? Are you serious? Right. Because nobody thinks about the constitutional issues in Congress anymore. And it's right. a shame. Right. But now the courts are the ones that have to do that. And it's part of the Reagan revolution, this recognition that if we are going to have have a constitutionally limited system, we need to have judges who enforce that by looking and put, passing a constitutional test on pieces of legislation that come before the court. And it was, it was, it was groundbreaking that, that they did it, and uh, there were some fits and starts, and you know, obviously we've had some justices who were disappointing. Number one on my list would be Justice Souter, yep. who was kind of a stealth candidate. Right. And, uh, the, Souter was uh, specifically a reaction to Bork, because yep. after Bork went down in large part because of his public writings and pronouncements. The, the Republicans decided they needed stealth candidates, mm -hmm. candidates who did not have a paper trail. Right. And so they found this guy, Souter. He did not have a paper trail. A couple of people like Warren Rudman and John Sununu vouched for him, mm -hmm. but didn't really understand the legal issues at play. And uh, you know, as soon as they had the internal White House meetings, uh, where they kind of started to vet Souter, and uh, this was after he'd been selected, but they kind of had the, the mock hearings where mm -hmm. they heard his judicial philosophy, Boyden Gray, who was the White House counsel, looked and listened to what he was saying and said, this is a disaster. Yeah. So yeah. they recognized, even before he was confirmed, that he yeah. was going to be a disaster. That's right. And within a few months of getting confirmed to the bench, he went hard left mm -hmm. and was one of the most reliable liberal votes. And then the best indication that he really became a liberal is he waited for a Democratic president mm. to resign from exactly. the court so he'd be sure to be replaced with a liberal. Exactly right. Exactly right. And Robert Bork was maybe the first casualty of the argument that the conservatives were making about original intent and taking back the courts. Yes, William Rehnquist was there and he was very solid. But Robert Bork was the first, uh, what would you call it, maybe judicial nominee, intellectual judicial nominee who was willing to fire those shots. And, and uh, I would say, how would you put this? He was the first casualty and Scalia was the first victory, maybe? in that fight, maybe? Yeah, but I would say Bork was the first casualty, but, but certainly not the only casualty. I mean, Clarence Top Thomas's reputation right, right. was a casualty yep. uh, of yep. this. I mean, they, they, they really and they've done that to us ever since, or they've so tried they to. Him another way. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it has led to some really negative and problematic consequences, and, um, and, and something that we, that we should think about. But Bork's book really did highlight these issues and make it understandable to the, to the lay reader. Great. Tempting of America by Robert. Can we do race when we come back? Sure. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Dr. Tevi Troy. Fight House, rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. We're talking about conservative policy books that we think we should reacquaint ourselves with as we go into more and more policy discussions, especially if we want to evangelize our issues to the larger public. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Jason and Tara were struggling to sell their home in North Scottsdale. Even with a hot market, their agent just couldn't generate any meaningful showings. And nearly a year later, their home still sat unsold. Then they hired James Wexler and uh, trusting his multiple offer 
pre-marketing plan. They had 15 showings the first weekend and four offers. The home sold for $15,000 above asking price. They had wished they'd called James first. James Wexler of JMG Real Estate guarantees to sell your home at market value or will pay the difference. He can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer within 24 hours. Give him a call at 480-386-0711 or visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's jameswexler.com. We're talking to uh, historian Tevi Choi. We're talking about books dealing with conservative policy. We did some welfare. I want to come back to welfare, too. We did some judicial issues. Race, Tevi. Uh, no issue has uh, afflicted uh, America in so long a time as race did this past year. And I think it's, um, it's, it's a topic a lot of people, particularly conservatives, feel like they have to be on their heels about uh, or have to talk about with a great measure of diffidence. Um, I have never felt that way, and I regret that too many do feel that way. But there's about three or four or five maybe books that I think we could recommend on this issue, maybe starting with the first one that chronologically really changed the discussion. And that was Shelby Steele's book, uh, The Content of Our Character, circa 1990, 91, somewhere in there. Wouldn't you say that was a land, land-breaking book? Not, not only a landmark book, but, but influential for me and my thinking. Because uh, here's Shelby Steele, who uh, grew out of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. who uh, was passionate about uh, civil and equal rights for African Americans, mm-hmm. as, as he should be. Um, and he talked about the unfairness in his eyes, as an African American, of race, race-based quotas and how it makes his achievements look less valued and less worthy. And it, w- it was really helpful to me to see it through his eyes and, and his approach to to this issue. And it was, it was it, I agree with you. It was a, it was a landmark groundbreaking book. It, it, he had that phrase that he introduced into the lexicon. I hope it's still there. I know it from back then. The stigma of questionable competence. That's what he said. Race based affirmative action did. It created a stigma or a permanent stigma of questionable competence. Easier for you know, him to enlighten us on um, than for us to talk about it, but it was, it, he, he broke a ceiling with that book, I think. Oh, absolutely. And it was, it, again, it was, it was something that really hadn't, it, it, was, it was a hole in, in the policy right. argument at yep. the time. Right. right. I mean, you had uh, you know the, the famous Bakke case mm-hmm. um, in the 1970s. It was a, it was a white student who felt aggrieved that he had not gotten in there. That it was unfair. Right. But here, was, Shelby Steele was looking at it from the African American again pro civil rights right. perspective, right. and saying that you know this is not just unfair to the people who may have better scores and can't get in, but this is also unfair in a way to the people who have worse scores and do get in mm-hmm. because or or equivalent scores and get in while other people with worse scores are getting in to uh, to programs because. It makes you think less of the people who get in on their merit. Right. A stigma of questionable permanent stigma of questionable competence. There were a few other books that came out. They weren't as big as that, but maybe they should be because they were good. Um, Stephen and Abigail Thernstrom, America in Black and White. I would add Dinesh D'Souza's End of Racism. What am I missing? Well, no, I think I think those are all excellent choices. Um, and uh, and um, I forgot the name of the Stuart Taylor book. Yeah, Stuart Taylor. Uh, right, right, right. Stuart Taylor. Stuart Taylor really did a statistical analysis that looked at how African Americans who get into schools that were stretches for them, but they get in because of racial preferences, ended up getting worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so that it's not only 
harmful to them for the, the stigma perspective, but actually in terms of the long-term economic benefits, uh, being put in a school that makes you more likely to drop out or not succeed in mm-hmm. that school is also harmful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Stuart Taylor also came from the mainstream media, and he uh, so he wasn't a conservative ideologue, uh, and he also had really um, did the heavy statistical analysis, did, did some real uh, thought work, and just so I thought that was a groundbreaking book. Mismatch, I think it was called. Mismatch: yeah, yeah, How Affirmative right. Action Hurts Students. Yeah. It's intended to help. There was a couple other books that were well done too by uh, a mutual friend of ours. He's on our state supreme court, Clint Bullock, at the time too. I remember. Um, let me uh, let me come back on a few other ideas I wanted to run by you as far as books go on um, on various policy issues too, if you don't mind. We have Dr. Tevi Choi with us, himself an author. By the way, you have a book. It's not your most recent on policy. It's on disaster management. You want to say it real quick before we hit the break? Yeah, shall we wake the president? Two hundred years of disaster management from the Oval Office, and really fascinating because I do have a chapter on pandemics, and I specifically talked in that book in 2016 about coronavirus and how we didn't have the countermeasures and we weren't ready if that thing would strike. I remember a famous reporter read that and said, Tevi Troy is a word I can't say, genius. (laughs) We will be right back. He is. He's a dear friend and a genius. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. There's only one supplement I take. I take it every single day. It's Balance of Nature. One daily dose gives me tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables. I think it's the most effective whole food supplement on the market. I've been taking it over a year. Haven't been sick once. I usually get sick every time the season changes, about four times a year. It's first year I haven't. It's first year I've taken Balance of Nature. They have a great deal right now offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800-246-8751. Or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. We are talking with uh, historian and author Dr. Tevi Troy. Uh, Tevi, um, did you want to say another word or two about your book on disaster management, or do you want to move on to some other issues? Yeah, so uh, go as ahead. you and your listeners know, Seth, that I write books about presidential history, but I also, you know, I'm a policy nerd. I worked on policy yeah. issues in the uh, Bush administration yeah. and in Congress, and I wanted to write a policy book, and I started to write this book about disaster management, and I realized that there was actually an interesting historical overlay. I could look at the history of how presidents have dealt with disasters as a way to inform what our policies should be, both in terms of preparing for potential disaster, but also reacting to the disasters when they came. And it actually worked out very well. The book, I think, was a big success. Yeah. And it also it showed that something that I didn't quite realize, that in the 19th century there was very little presidential involvement with disasters of any kind, right. and increasing involvement in the 20th century. And in the 21st century, my, my gosh, we expect that, the president to come up with a vaccine and rescue people in right. boats in New Orleans. Right. And, right. and the, the expectation is the president gets hyper-involved. Right. And I think that itself is a policy problem. But I do talk specifically about where I think the federal government should be involved and where I think the state should be involved and what the president should do. Well, when you think about it, whether it's this year or Katrina or others, you know, disasters do have the potential to radically alter our politics. They just do. And pres- oh, absolutely. And, I think know, the results of the election would probably be different without coronavirus. Good. I think that's a uh, yeah. questionable proposition. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's not arguable. The results would, one way or another, be a lot different. Tevi Troy, let's talk education. 
education. Uh, there's a lot of books about education. There's three that I think are critical reading for people that want to think about it seriously at the elementary, secondary, and even higher education level. The, uh, let's let's start with the with the with the sexy one, which is higher education. And you and I would obviously come to the same conclusion as to what book that is. And that's Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind. Now, true, we're saying policy, not philosophy, but you can't divorce them when it comes to higher education. And that's why I think Alan Bloom's book still stands tall. You want to say a word or two about it? Yeah, look, it's 30 years old, but it effectively, effectively is a policy book. Right. Because it says that we are not educating our children and they are not prepared when they go through high school and they go to college to to accept and to understand difficult ideas. Mm-hmm. And that there's just, he had this brilliant riff on tolerance mm-hmm. and how if tolerance is the ultimate goal, then anything outside of tolerance is not to be tolerated, right. which means that this tolerance of above everything and anything else is really a form of very intense intolerance. Right. And I remember reading that, and it was like scales fell before my eyes mm-hmm. and I finally understood what 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 the problem was in terms of uh, political correctness and the radical- yeah when we talk about corrupt colleges and I'm pretty strong on it and you know Prager's very strong on it, others are this is this is this is the roadmap this is why Alan Bloom was right then he's he, his book is more right now than it was then but it's the same book right in some ways things are worse today yeah oh yeah it's so- all worse it's all much worse and the reason I say that is because when he wrote that 1987 I think it was. You know, you could go to an institute of higher education. You could go to a college or a university that wasn't called Hillsdale, and you could find two or three or maybe even four or five, if you're lucky, conservative professors. I obviously found one that was important to me. You had someone, a few. You had Jeremy Rabkin and others, right? Um, That's all gone. That's all gone. Those five are gone at any given college. If you yeah, have but, one, but you're lucky. More here, we can name all five across the country now, right? Starting right. at Princeton, right. we can name. But it's all not five. just the professors themselves. Right. I understand there. Are, it's harder to find a conservative professor at a, at a good university these days. But the other issue, and I think this is a more important issue, is that free speech was a value yep. to both yep. left and right yep. at that time. Yep. And you could argue against speech codes by saying right. we believe in free speech right. in the First Amendment. Right. And today, free speech is an argument that on the left is laughed at and scoffed and right. mocked right. and said the free, you know, they believe free speech is some kind of It's a weapon. It's a weapon. Right. They think of it as a weapon of the conservatives, yeah. Right. So right. the argument that we had for free speech, which, you know, we would have groups like the ACLU right. on our side right. and, and people like Jonathan Rausch on right. our side, right. uh, that, that is no longer there. Yep. And it, it's very hard to find allies if free speech isn't a common and shared value. You bet. You bet. They got rid of that, and they turned them into Stalinist camps. Sorry. At the elementary and secondary level, there were two – one's still a landmark, and I think it was cultural literacy by E.D. Hirsch, who's not really a conservative. Not but, at all a conservative. Yeah. In fact, he was irate yeah. that he was considered a conservative right. by saying there are things in Western culture and in American culture that are worth preserving, and here are them. Yeah. And he listed them. And, you know, in some ways it's not really a, a readable book. It's, it's more of a list of what, what are the great things that have been said and thought, you know, the famous Matthew Arnold de- definition of culture. And he, he was kind of shocked and offended that he was considered a conservative for doing this. But yep. the truth is it is a conservative impulse to yep. conserve what is great <laughs> in Western culture. Exactly. He was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal recently about maybe two months ago. Did you see that interview? 
It's well. Did, yeah. It was. It's really good. And to this day, he's still bitter that he's so embraced by the conservatives because he calls himself a liberal progressive, but he ain't. Not when it comes right. to pedagogy or Western civilization, anyway. Yeah, but, I, but but it's important that we have allies. Look, you know, even Alan Bloom was sure. didn't consider himself a, a conservative, certainly not a Republican. I think he was a Democrat. I think Alan Bloom was, yeah, a, Democrat. Was, was a Democrat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but. It's important to have allies if it's just conservatives making these arguments for free speech and the other side doesn't make an argument for free speech, then what do you do? I mean, where do you go, especially on a campus that's overwhelmingly liberal? Exactly right. You need to have allies in order to have success in these fights. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention The Educated Child by uh, three authors, William Bennett, Chester Finn, and John Cribb, uh, all of whom have been guests on this show, and we talk education with them a lot. Bennett, Finn, and Crib, The Educated Child. That more for parents, I think. Um, that would be a great guide for parents, what to look for in elementary and secondary schools. I still think that's a fantastic but, book. But, but I think that was inspired in part by the Hirsch book. Of course it was. It was of course it was. You the, bet. The Hirsch book was really groundbreaking. You bet. You bet. Uh, Bennett tried to do a lot with Hirsch um, as education secretary, and Hirsch tried to keep his distance because he didn't want to be so embraced by the Reagan administration. Right. <laughs> but you get that you get the um, you get the impact. There. Hey Hirsch, we're the only ones who like you, you know. Yeah, I know, right? I know. <laughs> you Wake don't up. have to pay for this microphone, <laughs> Tevi Troy. This has been great. I appreciate you staying with us for the better part of fifty minutes talking about books. And um, if you think of others. Uh, email me or text me or let me know, and we'll talk about them. We'll come back and talk about them some more. But this has been Always good. happy to talk to you and your listeners, Seth. And, uh, you know, if you, if you want to get distracted from the crazy going yep. on these days, read Fight House. Fight House. <laughs> yes, it's a great book. It's a lot of fun. Gosh, I learned a lot of history in there. Tevi Troy, Godspeed. Thank you so much. You bet. There's a couple other books I wanted to mention on my own that I thought um, would be good for the audience to think about and for rereading if you haven't. One I didn't mention, one issue I didn't mention, abortion. Interesting how it's such a big issue, right to life is such a big issue in the, um, in the conservative movement. And yet you struggle to think of big books or good books on it. There is one that's fantastic and easy to read and really smart, and that's Hadley Arcus's Natural Rights and the Right to Choose. Um, I think also to familiarize yourself or ourselves with the debates that we've inherited, the issues we've inherited, I would suggest um, the radio addresses of Ronald Reagan. The radio addresses of Ronald Reagan, which covered, you know, his syndicated broadcast that ran, I'll get it wrong, but roughly, if I'm wrong, it's by a year, roughly from 1975, 6 to 1978, 9, 8, 78, because he was running for president in 79. The radio addresses of Ronald Reagan, Ronald Wilson Reagan. I think those are extremely, that, that, that book and those radio addresses are really important to see how those where those debates and issues started, many of them still with us. Um, and I think I would also recommend um, almost any book by William Buckley. 
the one I, that I'm tempted to recommend above others, it's not necessarily his best book, but it's concrete in four major issues from welfare to education to taxes and that's and crime. And that's um, <coughs> excuse me, a book of his called Four Reforms, William F. Buckley's Four Reforms. We didn't do a lot on crime. Uh, we could have done uh, Heather McDonald's books uh, or anything obviously uh, by by um, by her by her teacher but um, I would say four reforms by William Buckley gets you a really good start to understanding still some of the same issues that are with us and what conservatives or someone like him Buckley was thinking about those issues welfare a lot of his books tend to be some of them are novels uh, some of them are novels some of them are um, compendiums of his columns um there's a couple books he wrote that are really just books uh one of them is i think up from liberalism but four reforms is one as well four issues that he thought would be important to reform for the 70s that we didn't and still have with us the hallmans in the house when we come back we'll be right back